0: Good morning, good morning. I recognize in whose pulpit I'm standing this morning, and and Pastor Nelson has done just an incredible job, and he is envied by many throughout this country for the ministry that he has carried on. I got He has got to be the longest tenured minister in the history of our church. I don't know of anyone who has held that kind of pulpit for that long, but I am extraordinarily impressed, but also so graciously um, respectful of the uh, the challenge that he has carried over these many, many years, and what a blessing he's been to our church. Let's go to the Word of God. What do you say? I'd like for you to direct your attention at this time to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, and I'm going to begin at verse 31. The Bible says, and at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, you got to leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Jesus replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people. Today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is going to be left unto you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I've given title to our text this morning and I want to talk to you for the next little while on the subject the saga of the fox and the hen the saga of the fox and the hen before I speak with you please join me as we talk with God nothing in my hand I bring Simply to thy cross I cling. So gracious Father, once again, let the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart, be acceptable in thy sight. For you are my strength and our Redeemer. In the blessed and holy name of Jesus our Christ. Amen. Amen. It's amazing to me how well-meaning individuals have attempted to rescue Jesus. To rescue him from the ill-fated risk of being associated with the least, the less, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the locked in, the left out, the neglected, and the oppressed. Over the years, there is quite a consortium of well meant alumni uh, the disciples were well-meaning when they shooed the mothers and their children away from Jesus as it reported in Matthew 10 and verse 14 for after all Jesus was a busy man he had things to do and and people to see again when the, Can- 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 the, the, the um, Canaanite woman cried out in Matthew fifteen twenty-one, Lord Son of David, have mercy on me. The disciples on the basis of their spiritual superiority urged him, "Send her away. She troubles us." Peter later displayed the same bias when in a vision prior to the invitation from the Cornelius the centurion to come over to his house. He denounced the invitation and vision that was given to him on the rooftop based upon racial stereotype. What? Come to your house? I don't associate with swine, vultures, and snails. I've never, I've never lured myself to that. And you could probably say the same thing when the brethren sent Ellen White to Australia after she addressed the Spring Council in nineteen in eighteen ninety, with her message, shown of the Lord our duty to the colored people, which was her rebuttal to Charles Kilbourne, who had written to the General Conference following the 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 camp meeting in eighteen eighty nine in Kentucky Tennessee, where Charles Kenny had the naked nerve to to ask if his family could sit in the congregation while he was being ordained. You know who Kennedy was. Kennedy Kennedy was the first African-American ordained minister. And, 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 and Kilbourne thought, this is going too far. Now you know, Jim Crow laws had come into the South following the, 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 the death of Lincoln and, and, uh, and, 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 and the Emancipation Proclamation. And, and everybody else felt that, that in order to get back what the, the, the war had taken away, we needed some rules. And with people getting along during the camp meeting, Kilborn who had fought in the, North, in the northern army and had become an Adventist when he went back to Iowa after the war, he felt that something needed to be done. But Ellen White came and set the record straight, and then the brethren said, well, maybe, maybe Sister White, you need to go work in Australia for a while. When I was in seminary here back in the late 18, 1960s, not 18, feels like 18, the social gospel was an anathema. I mean, you didn't get anywhere talking about the social gospel. It was almost as if you had left the faith. But let me say at the outset that any attempt to separate Jesus from what he referred to as the fast that he had chosen, a.k.a. the social gospel, is a vain attempt at best. It's like separating law and grace. Or as James, the brother of Jesus, would have said, faith and works, they go together. They're two sides of the same coin. Or as my mother might have said, the sacredness of Friday night and the sacredness of Sabbath morning. In other words, the two, the two go together like a horse and carriage, like salvation and liberation. Now I suppose it's easier for some of us to accept that more so than others because as quiet as it's kept, that was the same message that slave masters gave to their slaves. You know the United States is very unique because it is the only country known to have prohibited the education of slaves. Eventually the law got somewhat relaxed by allowing religious instruction. But when slaves were allowed to attend church, when slaves were introduced to Jesus, When they were allowed to get baptized, the slave masters made it very clear that this does not change your slave status. You are my slave before you get baptized in Jesus. You're going to be my slave afterwards. Salvation was about the world to come. It had nothing to do with the here and now. Are you hearing me? The masters felt that all the slaves needed to know about God and the Bible was that God had cursed them, which was a lie, that they were created to be slaves, which was another lie, and slaves obey your masters in all things. But you know what? You're supposed to say what? What? (laughs) The slaves started doing their own theology. You see, what I did not learn in the seminary but what I learned following the seminary because the seminary teaches you how to study and how is that theology is not static. It's not just what theologians studied and put in a book. That you and I do theology all the time. It is the human effort to understand God within our human predicament. That's what theology was. And so the slaves listening to the sermons that were meant to try to keep them constricted and to accept their lot in life came up with, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't he? Then why not every man? The Holy Spirit helped them to put two and two together. And they began to see the vision splendid. If God is not concerned about social justice, if everything is supposed to wait until he comes the second time, if we are not all our brother's keepers and our sisters too, then let me ask you this question. Why did God go through all the trouble of delivering Israel from the bondage of Egypt? Why didn't He just send a, a revival and let them remain there as slaves? We were studying this a couple of weeks ago at my church in, in Bowie, the, 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 the 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 resurrection. Uh, restoration praise church and, and, and during the sermon there was a dialogue taking place between the preacher and the audience and he was talking about the fact that we had been made in the image of God and in his likeness you know the text there in, in Genesis chapter 1 now if God is the totality of love and joy and peace and, 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 and gentleness and and patience and if God is the totality of that if he is the vine and we are the branches you see where I'm going then 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 should we not emulate what God is in offering that same thing and in conducting our lives in the same way after all we are called Christians Little Christ. And just as Christ was sent into the world, not just to save the world in their sin, but to redeem their world, the world from, should we not also? While you're thinking on that, let's go to our scripture for the morning. About 40 years, about 40 BC, a man by the name of Herod the Great went to Rome to receive the title King of the Jews. Now, Herod was not a nice man. His family life was in a mess. In fact, Caesar Augustus said he would rather be Herod's pig than one of his sons. That's a pretty stiff common don't you think I mean this guy was as one preacher said tore up from the floor up he was married 10 or 11 times he had 43 children but he only had one wife that he ever loved her name was Miriam he married her when she was 15 years old say say what Okay. she had five children in seven years And then Herod decided that he couldn't fully trust her loyalty, so he had her executed. The only wife he ever loved. And he wasn't too sure about his mother-in-law either, so he had her executed as well. Two of his sons, he thought, were getting a little too ambitious, and so he had two of his sons executed because he thought they were trying to crowd him out and take the throne. And when he was dying, or close to death, five days before he died, he thought another one of his sons was trying to take over, and so he had the third son executed along with the rest. Are you following my drift? Now Josephus is the original source for much of the life of Herod. But I I am really indebted to two individuals, Pastor John Ortberg and also Dr. Peter Richardson, especially Richardson, whose work was a monumental uh, enlightenment on the life of, of Herod. And you might want to check it out. It's called Herod, King of the Jews and Friend of the Romans. I mean, he, King Henry VIII and Catherine the Great and Peter the Great, they had their issues. But Herod, whoa, whoa, he was bad news. He knew when he died that nobody was going to mourn his death. So he had dozens of the most influential people arrested and put in prison. And he ordered that when he died that they would be executed because he wanted somebody to mourn and cry On the day of his death. When he died his estate was a mess. He left seven different wills. And they weren't sure which one was binding. So three of his sons went off to Rome to carve up the pie. And to get as much of the territory as they could. I'm I'm telling you this because you need to understand the context in which Jesus conducted his ministry so here are the names on the screen of his three sons Archelaus Herod Antipas and Herod Philip they were all Herod, Herod and Herod so they got to Rome to get as much of the territory as they could get and there's a map up there that's on the screen and it shows you that to the far north was Philip's territory and then below Philip was Herod Antipas's territory and then below that was Archelaus' territory. And then to the left was the Mediterranean Sea. Now Archelaus goes to Rome to ask Caesar to make him king over as much of the territory as he can get. However, recently Archelaus's soldiers have slaughtered 3,000 Israelites in Jerusalem. Right there in the temple area during the Passover. Now to be in the temple in Jerusalem during the Passover preaching and teaching about a new coming kingdom was pretty subversive. Would you not agree? It was a kind of dangerous thing to do. Would you agree? So Archelaus had his soldiers to take him out. Well you can imagine how they felt. They hated him. In fact, they hated him so much that they sent a delegation to Rome to go before Caesar and to let him know, we don't want this guy. In fact, they said they would rather be under the authority of Syria, who were pagans, than under Archelaus. But Caesar was not going to let citizens dictate to him, and so he put Archelaus in charge. And Archelaus goes back to Palestine, where he's going to take up his rulership. And he hears about the 50 50 members of the delegation. And he called them all before him publicly. And he had them executed. Give me a little more mic. I'm running out of volume up here. I mean, this is some scary stuff. And it sounds like much of the news that we hear around us today. Well, Jesus heard about this. After all, he was born in Bethlehem, the same territory where Archelaus ruled. And you remember how Joseph and Mary fled from Bethlehem and went to Egypt because Herod the Great was still alive and he was slaughtering all the children. It ran into family. And after Herod died, Matthew chapter two twenty-two. Says that they initially had planned to move back home where they started. But they were afraid to go there and they were warned in a dream to turn aside and they went to Galilee. When they learned that Archelaus was there, they decided not to go. That's how they got to Nazareth. And this background helps you to understand the Bible. Now, let me tell you, Jesus had a lot of courage. And he was far from the little, the, 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 the little meek and lonely child as we tried to portray him. You remember Jesus told the story about the parable and the talents. You remember that? All the boys and girls, you remember that? How the Lord gave the talent to this person and that person? Okay. Interesting story. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 and forward. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem. And because they thought the kingdom of God would appear me- immediately, therefore he said, listen now, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom in return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered unto them ten minus, and said to them, do your business until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, does that sound like a familiar story? Do you think the people thought maybe who Jesus is talking about? He's talking about Archelaus. Archelaus. And in fact, Jesus was not biting his tongue. I'm talking about Jesus and the social gospel. Jesus was sending messages into the crowd. But it gets better. Here's another one. Did you hear about the man who went off for his inauguration, but his people hated him so much that they sent a delegation to vote him off the island? And the crowd said, I can't believe he's saying this thing. Does he know whose town we're in? So here's the rest of the parable. Luke 19, 27. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them right before my eyes. And that is exactly what happened. And when he had said that, Jesus went on to Jerusalem. Now the triumphant entry... Is just about to take place. I gotta rush now because I get into the heart of the message. All of this is taking place around Passover. Say Passover. Passover. Who is this Jesus? This is not the Jesus that we hear about who doesn't want to rock the boat. This isn't the kind of Jesus who is trying to be popular, is it? Let me tell you, Jesus was not crucified for nothing. Yes, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But he's also the Lion of the tribe of Judah. I want to shift my focus just a little bit now for the remainder of this message. And I want to talk about Jesus and Herod Antipas. And the statement that culminates in our Semitic text. Go tell that fox. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Lucas 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iurea, I- and the region of uh, of, of Tro. Conitus and Lysianitus, Tetrarch of Albeleen, while Annas and Caiaphas, I was murdering those words, were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, why did the Bible go through all of that? It's like reading off a list of the who's who and the VIPs. Jesus is trying to set a stage about what he's about to say about the word of God and who it was coming unto. It makes it clear that the word of God was not sent initially to Caesar or to Herod or to his sons, the people who had rank or privilege or clout. The word of God is being sent to the untitled, the uncredentialed, the unscholarly, the unwashed, the ragged and the begetted and people like the locust-eating hermit of John the Baptist. During the reign of Caesar, Pontius Pilate and Herod, the word came to God the Baptizo. God is coming. And at that announcement, things began to get moved out of their places. And guess what? It took place also in his first coming. When Jesus came to Bethlehem, who was it that the word was sent unto? It was the shepherds. And it was the wise men who came from the east, who weren't even a part of the family of Israel. Jesus gave them the... I'm talking about the social gospel. He gave it first to shepherds. Shepherds in that day were the least and the less and the left. Nobody wanted to associate with shepherds. You need to underscore that. I'm coming back to that. Remember what my subject is. The outcasts, the lepers, the lepers were, were required to ring a bell that cried out, Unclean, unclean. And yet Jesus embraced them. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. Men didn't do that in in Jesus' day. You don't speak to a woman on the street. Jesus healed the, the blind man on the Sabbath. He broke the Sabbath law in order to make the man whole. Think about the issues. Incredible illness, family rejection, conflict over religion, fear of authority, ignorant and heartless religious leaders, and misplaced judgment. They wanted to know how did he sin that he was cursed by blindness. And Jesus cut through all of that in order to minister to a outcast sinner what's the message Jesus accepts people even when their religion doesn't how do we apply that today this man's own parents wouldn't defend him because they were afraid that the church would judge them for defending their son who was totally innocent what about parents today of children who may have issues in terms of their sexuality? Do we send those parents into a corner somewhere and tell them to shut up and just wait? Jesus searches out for the religious rejects. And when he finds them, He encourages them, and he tells them, come unto me. Rejected people need to know that God cares. Jesus cleansed the temple. That's a dramatic story. I need to share with that with you. I know I'm running out of time here, quick. Jesus cleansed the temple, and he began to teach them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer for all people. Not y'all people. All people. Did you know? Did you know that the part of the temple that Jesus cleansed was the part that was set aside for foreigners and women and children. They didn't desecrate their part of the temple. They desecrated it They're part of the temple. They went in to where they were supposed to worship. After all, although God did not instruct them, they decided that women and children and foreigners should not have the same access in the temple as the rest of us good Christians If we were living in that day, that whole congregation that was sitting up here on the platform, they would have been out in the yard. And all of you ladies, you had no place, no privilege being in here with the rest of the good, handsome, sanctified men. And when Jesus went into the temple, he upset that whole political Economy, and he got in trouble with all of the intelligentsia they said this guy is wrecking things we have got to take him out Jesus included women, children foreigners, sinners, the unclean the outcast, the sick and even the murderers and those who were on death row when the the leaders of the community brought that woman and threw her at the feet of Jesus what are you going to do with her now Lord you're so wise and so intelligent what did Jesus do here are the the Jeffrey Epstein and the and the Harvey Weinstein and the, and the Cosby's of his world. Ellen White said that the... Why did Jesus write in the sand? Ellen White says that some of them had put her in that position. And now they're judging her as if she sinned by herself. Are you listening to me? Jesus was, he could have very quietly said to her, your sins are forgiven. Go but he had to deal with structure of the structure of the community and of the church that allowed that to happen. And we don't want to touch that. There are those, we get letters at the North American division when, when our leaders will, will use their influence to make a statement. After all, that's a slippery slope. That's a slippery slope. Martin Luther King was correct. We're not the we're not the the that therm- the, we're not the thermometers of society. We're the thermostats. Jesus said, I have sent you into the world. We're supposed to help to set the temperature, not just to record it. And it's clear that not a whole lot has changed over the years. So when John began to announce the kingdom of heaven has come, all the so-called kings and potentates began to feel threatened. The word of God comes to John the Baptist, and he begins to preach, and he begins to call people, the ordinary people, to repentance. But the sovereign God of the universe is an equal opportunity Savior. And so, like the parable of the wedding feast, John's message went to the high and the low, the rich and the poor. It even reached the throne of Herod Antipas. And Herod didn't like it. Luke 3 and verse 19. But Herod the tetrach being rebuked because the word of God is a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways, right? And he felt the cut of the sword. Because he was rebuked concerning Herodias. Well, who was Herodias? His brother Philip's wife. And all the evils he had done. Well, what had he done? The Bible says that what has been done in the darkness shall come to the light. What has been whispered in the secret chambers shall be shouted from the rooftop. John had been a thorn in Herod's side for a long time. He can come into my territory and he's going to upset and talk about me like that before my people, not in my turf. That's the last time he's going to preach a sermon like that. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4, 12 to 17. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison he went to Galilee and leaving Nazareth he came and dwelt in Capernaum which is by the sea in the region of Zebulon and Naphtali that he might fulfill that which is spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death Light has dawned. So Jesus takes up John's preaching. That's what he does. He returned to the very place and started preaching the same message that had John thrown into prison. He goes to the territory of Herod Antipas. If I have to be honest, if I were Jesus, I would have had second thoughts knowing that what he got to to John, he would bring to him. It's as if Jesus is saying, okay, Herod, if you you think putting somebody in prison is going to shut down my kingdom, you've got another thing coming. John was just the forerunner. I'm the man. I'm the one he was talking about. You can't separate salvation from liberation. There are two sides of the same. God does not do anything halfway. Have you ever seen half a sunrise? Have you ever seen half a sunset? Have you ever seen half a raindrop? Have you ever seen half a landscape or a seascape? And the answer is no, because God never does anything halfway? The slave masters were wrong. Yes, Paul instructed the slave to obey his master, but what he was trying to say is ultimately Christ is your master. And then he said to the slave master, Provide for your slave what is right and fair. God is an equal opportunity employer. And kingdom builders are not obsessed with the need to play it safe. If you don't know it, the preaching of the gospel is meant to get you in trouble. Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been thrown into prison and he walks right into the lion's den. Herod's first marriage was to the daughter of the king who was his nearest and greatest enemy, the king of Nebatea. And they lived right next door to each other. And Herod marries this guy's daughter. Now, he didn't fall in love. He didn't even care for her. He, it had nothing to do with romance or, or or two islands in the sea. It was all political. You know, I can't help but feel sorry for the women down through the years who have endured so much, who have fallen under the control of people like like Herod and 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 Harvey and Jeffrey their fathers and their mothers who saw what happened to them were praying that somebody would do something about this you remember the story about the Chilean miners who got who got captured down there stuck in in the earth for 62 days When they were praying and when their family was praying, who do you think God had planned to use to get them out of there? Nine times out of ten, when people are praying, God has some hands on the ground. He has some boots on the ground. Who are those boots? We are the... I grew up in a church that said we were God's hands and God's feet. And the people who rescued those miners and brought them to safety represent the kind of ministry that we're supposed to have. You think that God is going to bring Lazarus out of the tomb when, without our moving the stone away? It is God's plan of liberation. But here it is. Herod falls in love with Herodias. Now he's married to the other guy's daughter. And he promises to build her a palace. But he has two problems. He's already married... That's one problem. Number two, she's already married too. She's married to his half-brother, Philip. Now, if he marries her, he will be marrying his wife, his niece, and his sister-in-law. And if he has children by Herodias... They will be, she will be their mother, their aunt, and their cousin. But she ex- he extends the invitation, and she says, I'll marry you, but you have to divorce your other wife first. Now, I really hope that the writers of reality TV don't get a hold of this, because this message will be a blockbuster. Well, it's no surprise that his father-in-law declared war on him. And so Herod the Antipas takes 10,000 soldiers to fight his father-in-law in in battle. And his father-in-law brings 20,000 soldiers and they beat him and give him a royal weapon. I'm closing out now. Jesus is preaching about the cost of discipleship. You think that's a strange message to have with all this war going on? And he's he's recruiting his his disciples. And he says things like, It's gonna be an uphill journey. He's saying things like, Unless you fall to the ground and die, you can't bear fruit. He's saying things like, you have to love me more than father or mother, sister or brother. In other words, this is no well-meaning journey. This is no sentimental journey. This is no Pollyanna affair. Then Jesus tells this story. For which of you intends to build a tower and does not sit down first and count the cost? Lest you have not the... The, 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 the ability to finish what you're starting then he adds a little more humor or what king going forth to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he with 10,000 soldiers are able to go up against the army of 20,000 who's he talking about this has just happened and Jesus is now broadcasting this news almost in mockery and everybody knows that Jesus is getting himself in trouble back to Luke chapter 7 Herod Antipas puts John in prison and Jesus takes up his ministry now back in the day The primary way that politicians communicated with their constituents was by distributing coins. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have Twitter or Instagram or YouTube. They didn't have newspapers or radios or TV. But most of them put pictures on on coins. And when the people saw the coins, They recognize the politician. What do you think of when you see two golden arches? What do you think of when you see a white bearded man in a white suit? What do you think of when you see a blue block with a lowercase f on it? What about a football helmet with the picture of an Indian on it? or an elephant or a donkey Herod doesn't put his picture on the coin why not? because his constituents remembered that God said we should not make any graven images so he used unlike Caesar he used reeds on his coin and when they saw the reeds They recognize we're in Herod's territory. Go back to John 7, 24 to 26. Jesus is preaching. Why did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaking in the wind? What did you go out to see? A man in fine clothes? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled in fine clothes live in the luxury of the king's court. But why did you go out to the wilderness? To see a prophet? Well, what man wore fine clothes and lived in a palace? Herod Antipas. Jesus said, you didn't go out to the wilderness to see that because you were hungry for something better. Something inside of you that wanted more than fine clothes and power and luxury could buy. Do you think that the crowd knew who he was talking about? Did you think I was talking about the people of Herod's day? I'm talking about you. You didn't come here for me to give you a message about how to get rich quick. And as Jesus is listening, as Jesus is speaking, the crowd is listening to him. And the closer they get to Jesus, the more his spirit begins to leap upon upon them. They're hungry for something better, more satisfying, more permanent, more secure. That's why the hymn writer E.E. Hewitt said, more about Jesus, I would know More of his grace to others show. More of his saveness, fullness, see. More of his love who died for me. Now turning to Luke chapter 8, 1 to 3. Now it came to pass. After that, Jesus went through every city and village preaching and bringing glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. And a certain woman who had been healed of the evil spirit, Mary, out of whom seven demons had been cast. And Joanna, the wife of Cusa, provided him with substance. Joanne's husband worked for Herod. Can you imagine what was going on in Joanna's marriage when her husband works for Herod and she's following Jesus? Can you imagine what took place when Herod had an audience with Cusa? Man, why can't you get your wife straight? Now, Cusa had a pretty good salary, don't you think? He's working for the king. And he brings his wealth home to Joanna. And Joanna is taking the money that Cusa got from Herod and giving it to Jesus. So when Jesus' financial accountant is going through all of the donations, at the top of the list is Coza, Joanna's husband, who works for Herod. You're looking at me wise and otherwise. Joanna wasn't just Jesus' follower. Joanna was Jesus' fundraiser. How unstoppable is the kingdom of God that he will make your enemies your footstool. Now, Herod the Tetrarch heard all that was done by him and he was perplexed because he heard that some said John had been raised from the dead. And Herod said, But I, I beheaded John. What, where is this coming from? I thought I was done with him. Who is this man? And then the Bible says he tries to see Jesus. Now he didn't want to go there to hear him preach. He wanted to get there so he could take him out. I'm just about there. And the apostles, when they, when they returned, and they told Jesus all that had happened, He took them aside and they went into a desert place belonging to the city of Bethsaida. Look at the map again. He went into Philip's territory. Now, I used to think when Jesus withdrew that he was going to some place where he could kick back and relax or where he would enjoy some nice accommodations. But it wasn't the scenery that was taking Jesus off there. He wasn't going there for R&R. He was going to get into a safe place because he was in trouble. Now this was where Philip reigned. Now Philip had a wife that Herod Antipas had stolen. So you can imagine that their relationship was not brother-brother. brother brother So he was safer in Philip's territory than any place else. And it was there that the Bible says some Pharisees came to him. Now, Pharisees came to help Jesus out? And they want him to get out of town. And Jesus makes that pronouncement. So let's play Jeopardy. When you hear the word fox, what do you think of? Sly as a fox, cunning as a fox. In Jesus' day, foxes weren't built that way. They They weren't written up that way. They were not characterized because foxes were compared to lions and foxes kind of held off until the lions did the dirty work and then they snuck in as poachers and they ate what the lions left off. And so when Jesus calls him that fox, he's not really paying him a whole lot of respect because foxes were the puppet leaders of the kingdom. Foxes were the wannabes. They weren't as tough as they looked. The lions did the bad work. The foxes kind of came and got the leftovers. Herod was Caesar's pawn, his toy boy. It was all pretense. It was a show, a, a house of cards. Go tell that fox. Fox if you hear the defiance in Jesus' voice you know where I'm coming from now this is not the lamb this is the lion you can't stop me by putting John in prison I'm not offended by the fact that you can take John out Herod, your house is coming down it's coming down and now the final verse. O Jerusalem, the Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stone those who have sent unto you. How often I would have gathered you, like a hen gathers her chicks. When a fox breaks into the hen house, who wins? The fox. Because the hen has so little to fight with. She has no teeth that she can gnaw or, or, or bite or gouge. She has no claws that she can scratch. What can the hen do but gather her chi- chickens under her? All she can do is try to protect them as she gives up her life. She says, take me, kill me if you must so that my children can live. It's the story of the fox and the hen. And at that moment, Jesus knew that if he entered Jerusalem, what was going to happen to him? He was a dead man. Rome would hear and Rome would act. If he stayed his course It was only a matter of time. It was predictable. He would have the death sentence. My friends, God is not left to some ambiguous, uncertain outcome. God's program is always personality driven. There is no leading without a leader. There is no friendship without a friend. There is no helping without a helper. There is no liberation without a liberator. And there is no salvation without a savior. No redemption without a redeemer. No justification without a justifier. No forgiveness without a forgiver. No fatherhood without a father. And no kingdom without a king. When God calls us He bids us come regardless of the consequences. And as I prepare to take my seat after 50 years of ministry I thank God for my calling. I am proud that God called me to be a preacher. Because it saves and it rescues and it liberates And I wouldn't take anything from my journey. I'm stopping for your sake. God has called us not to be of the world, but to reside in the world. That we might be thermostats, not thermometers, he did not send us here to condemn the world and to put people in their places and to tell them how bad they are compared to who we are. Are you getting this? He sent us into the world to rescue the perishing and to care for the dying and to the minister to those who are the outcasts. Today is our day. It is our hour. It's going to get darker before it gets brighter. Judgment is coming. It begins first with the house of Israel. What herods are you challenged by? Who is threatening your life? Who is it who is trying to rob you of giving your all for the kingdom of heaven? Are you pl- trying to play it safe? Trying not to rock the boat? Are you hugging to the little Jesus, meek and mild? Are you ready to go to war with him? Yes. He calls us together, gather our children about us. But he also says that we will always have the assurance that under his banner, that we will experience victory. Amen. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, We thank thee that you have called us into this message for such a time as this. We beg you not to let us go until we have covenant with you to be all that we can be for the kingdom of God because it is not by might neither is it by power but it is by your spirit And you said that one will chase a thousand and two would put two thousand to flight. Reclaim that promise for every living, breathing child of God under the sound of my voice. In the blessed name of Jesus.